So we say we get started. How you been doing today? Been pretty good. It is uh, getting a little bit warmer out there. Yes, it is. We had a nice walk. One of the things we do at night, we tend to walk and uh, get our steps in. And you got to play with Archie for a while. Oh, the wild man. Yes. Archie sometimes is a little bit uh, rambunctious, I guess. Uh, he just has uh, an inf- he's an infinite bundle of energy. That's how I put it. He has an infinite bundle of energy, sort of like the uh, world of semiconductors. That's what we're going to talk about today. Semiconductors are men and women that uh, direct symphonies and, uh, and uh, chamber choirs. But not quite oh there's not no, they're, so they're semiconductors they're not full conductors oh so what is a semiconductor i think the layman would understand them as chips 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 that seems to be the only word that anybody in the media or is there anybody can use but yes semiconductors uh, processors electrical gizmos that are indistinguishable from magic yes i remember years ago we had a guy uh, who has our same first name he said to me the day's going to come when everything is going to have a computer chip in it remember when i said to him I don't know about that. Kind of disagree a little bit, but I was 100% wrong. Yeah, now you have chips in literally everything. Uh, dishwashers, your car. Your car has, you know, potentially a dozen or more different subsystems that are all separate but interlinked. Um, yeah, there's chips in absolutely everything. There are even chips on uh, paintings that are on walls that if you move them, it sets off alarms and everything else. So we're going to talk about semiconductors. We're going to talk about China. We're going to talk about hacking. We're going to talk about Shanghai, Taiwan. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. But what we need to do is get our disclaimer out of the way so let's do that right now this is the paul truesdell podcast due to the extensive holdings of our sponsor fixed cost financial and your hosts you should expect that a conflict of interest exists with all companies discussed and now two pauls in a pod the paul truesdell podcast Well, there's chips and everything, and unfortunately, everything seems to have to have, to have a disclaimer, so we got to get that out of the way. Want, uh, let's get started. Listen, if you're going to get in the semiconductor business, which is chips, 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 okay, you have to have some serious long-term conviction. This is nothing that uh, you're going to do anymore in your garage like Hewlett-Packard did years ago and build computers. Well, semiconductors, since the, sili- you know, in, once we got into the silicon era, which is when semiconductors became a thing, really, um, you know, the they've always been capital intensive and long-term very complicated projects to get anything done even basics and that's why intel modern intel uh formerly what fairchild semiconductor um you know was a combination of a whole bunch of people with a lot of different skill sets that needed to pull together to be able to do something it was it was immensely capital intensive even back then back in the what 60s yeah and to be very blunt with you it has been the development has been overwhelmingly here in the united states it's been in germany it's been in uh, sweden a little bit uh, the Netherlands it's, it's been a very limited number of people that have developed yeah, the I mean, incredible technology that goes into chips yeah semiconductors were invented you know in the United States and all the core competencies of developing uh, even very modern super high and advanced uh, semiconductor stuff right? whether it's some little stupid dinky little thing like you said that's uh, maybe in a little NFC chip that goes on a painting that detects if uh, something's been removed all or it's something you know it's the very high-end new uh, 
uh, it, uh, I guess this fall, uh, TSMC is going to be bringing online their three nanometer lithography, um, whether it's you know something simple or something super advanced. Almost all of that stuff has been developed in the U.S. or at least started here and then refined elsewhere, but it's mainly the U.S. and Europe. For those of you who have heard our prior podcast, you know that we have no use for a fellow by the name of Jack Welch. And thank God Jack did not run Intel and thank God the people that ran Kodak did not run Intel because we would be out of business. Now, one of the things when you are investing like this for this kind of stuff, I mean, this is a consistent long-term investment that you've got to make. We're talking not just a few million, we're talking billions and billions of dollars. And uh, as a result, there are security issues. Yes. Uh, obviously, people think of uh, people think of chips and semiconductor design as something that's very simple. It's not. It's very complicated. Redesign process has lots and lots and lots of potential downsides and flaws and for manipulation. This is exactly the same as it is with any any software. And the difference is, is it's designed in stone. So it's been delivered, it's been delivered. So getting into those things at an early stage in their design process or, or in the case of uh, some of these ship manufacturers, their fabrication process is uh, very valuable. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Taiwan. And, and one of the things I want to share with you real quickly, because I, I like giving illustrations, I think, that normal everyday people can understand. Right now, think of Taiwan as your bank. An awful lot of chips are made in Taiwan. Not the exclusive amount. I mean, obviously, we got fabs here, fabrication facilities, fabs for short, here in the United States and elsewhere. But there are lots of stories historically of, you know, fabs that went on in Vietnam and Thailand and Cambodia, different places, and they were dirty. I mean, these, these facilities have to be not just white glove clean. They have to be the cleanest facilities on earth. Now, with that being said, would you put your bank right next door to the headquarters of, let's say, Organized Crime USA? I would hope not. Unfortunately, you all need to understand that's exactly what we got going on, which... Taiwan and China. Yeah, Taiwan and China do not get along. Obviously, just saying Taiwan would make a uh, Chinese ultra-nationalist very, very angry because they're just an extension. They're they're the they're 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 the uh, they're the friend that got away. And yeah, the Chinese uh, are very envious of the uh, skills and, and capabilities of of Taiwan. And they not only want to take over Taiwan the island at some point, but in the short term, they have been investing a lot of resources into uh, intellectual and actual like physical labor capture of some of these people who do this really specialized work designing and fabricating chips. And you should know the the old-fashioned word is hacking, and that has been going on quite literally for decades. Thus, the title that we have, World War III, has been going on for decades. And, you know, a lot of people think World War, oh, you, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Our U.S. troops aren't in combat. Our U.S. troops are in combat every single day, along with every technology, white hack, uh, every part. I mean, it, it. we are constantly under attack. And Taiwan, in particular, has had some real serious issues. There's been a lot of serious security breaches. For example, in the uh, towards the end of 2019, um, the Taiwanese chip makers, they got a completely new thing going on. And it is way bigger than any hack uh, that some young man or woman could do. Uh, it literally has 
had something buried super crazy deep into the chip maker's actual computer systems and then launched an undetected code that just sat around and sat around and sat around and eventually just waited to be the gold mine. I'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, in intelligence operations, it's the equivalent of having a deep long-term mole. They got, you know, and, and as far as technology, it's it's one of the things that is such a problem uh, in the grand scheme of things for companies to deal with because you have major adversaries developing exploits or exploiting uh, exploiting uh, bugs or issues or things that weren't considered in hardware and software. And those, uh, the, the, the rub is that you have major companies who develop these things and they want to keep them as secure as possible. But then over the long term, have governments and, and other institutions, primarily governments, who want to keep some of these open because, hey, you know, this is a special backdoor and uh, if you can keep quiet about this problem in your software or your, your hardware, then we can exploit it and then use it against our adversaries. And uh, you know, so in, in there's there's like very, there's lots of many levels to this, um, but on a, on a singular company level, having a an exploit uh, buried deep within the company for potentially months, if not years, TSMC or, or other uh, Taiwanese semiconductor uh, companies, that would be one of the worst of the worst. Because one thing I don't think a lot of people understand is that uh, TSMC is is a, are a huge, they're a behemoth. Uh, they produce the majority of the high-end chips that you use every day. They don't produce the stuff that goes in your dishwasher, or hand drill, or, or even a lot of stuff that goes into your cars. But they produce a ton of stuff that goes into your smartphones and your computers and TVs. Really, really expensive stuff. And those chips are really, really complicated. And they create their own software to design the actual physical layouts of how the how the actual circuits work on those chips. So that's probably one of the riskiest things in the world as far as hacking goes beyond, you know, some like doomsday scenario about like, you know, nuclear weapons or poisoning water supplies or something. Um, poisoning, for all practical purposes, the design of a chip to have a certain flaw is probably up there with like the worst potential security breaches that you could have. And having something undetected for months, if not years, is very, very scary in my view. When we talk about something called a skeleton key, that is literally a long-term mole. Now, to give you some reference for those of you and myself as well, I'd like to have some physical, uh, something to relate to. Think of Aldridge Ames of the FBI and another guy with the FBI, Robert Hansen. Long-term moles, Russian moles that just absolutely destroyed the nation. Now, who was the guy who was a mole for a long, long time with the uh, with Israel? I can't remember his name. Uh, Pollard. Yeah, Pollard. So these people, they spend not just a few months. They don't suffer from ADD. These are long-term plays, generational plays that are on. Now, what I want to bring to your attention, this this most recent thing, what they did is they figured out a couple of items. One, they figured out that the location of the Chinese hack, and I'm not going to pronounce the name properly, you probably will do better, is Sinju Science Park. And the reason why they figured that out is because they, they, they can't give 100%, but it's a near 100% chance because what they figured out they could see based upon the chip you know the the implant there we'll call it an implant the exploit yeah, yeah the exploit the data being fed out yeah so it's a nine to nine they whoever was doing it was working 12 hours a day six days a week corresponds to the way chinese do what they do and they also were able to say hey look they slow down at this particular time which happens to be lunchtime at this location there were a whole bunch of other things that they found and then the other thing they found is that oh come october they all kind of settle down which 
which is a Chinese New Year and all that kind of stuff, Lunar New Year, whatever it is there. And um, and then the other thing, they, they found little tiny snippets of code where one hacker in China is talking to another hacker and it's in Chinese. And the Chinese that they use in Taiwan is different from the Chinese that they do in, in on the mainland there. And they're able to put that together. Think of that. I mean, we're talking massive amounts of time to find these little tiny clips of this and that and what's going on. This doesn't look quite right. Well, yeah, that, that again, it gives away an element of investigative uh, stuff that most people think, oh, I'm being compromised. Hit the red, big red stop button and stop it off immediately. Sometimes that's not the most advantageous thing to do, even though it's a high, it's high risk. Sometimes you want to sit there and just let them continue doing whatever the hell it is that they're doing. Try and figure out one, who it is, and two, what they're actually, what they're actually, you know, what, what you need to be guarded and defensive about versus just cutting it off and then being kind of in the dark as to what was actually stolen and who it was. In a long way, you can't stop doing what you do. You've got to keep manufacturing knowing that this chip and this chip and this are going to be garbage. We can't use this. Or at least has the potential to be. So the bottom line is China is right literally on Taiwan's doorstep. It is, uh, Taiwan is a global chip manufacturing juggernaut. And um, it is literally a pillar of their economic uh, economy. I mean, that is like absolutely critical. Now, one of the things that you know a lot more about than I do is that we're getting more and more fabrication units coming online here in the U.S. I believe Intel is the one that's really beginning to step up. Um, well, it's multiple companies. TSMC has a bunch of projects in Arizona. Intel is uh, doing a whole company kind of reorg as far as their lines of business and what they're focusing on going into the future. They are building something like a 20-something billion dollar facility someplace in Ohio. They're planning on doing the same thing someplace in Germany. Um, TSMC, you, you said, you know, semiconducting technologies are huge to Taiwan, and they are. TSMC in specific, a Taiwan semiconductor, they are literally the crown jewel of the Taiwanese economy. Um, there, people have talked for years about, you know, X company could buy TSMC or Y company could. And the reality is, yeah, I mean, some companies, if you can come up with the uh, several hundred billion dollars it would take to buy the company, yeah, you could. But they would never sell because they are the largest company in Taiwan. They are, it's a huge sector of their economy. And um, yeah, so as far as, uh, but they are doing things in the United States. So you look at uh, Intel, TSMC, SMC. Uh, back a few years ago, uh, a lot of people get confused. They don't realize that companies like Foxconn, uh, if you recall, there was a bit of a blunder during the Trump administration. They were going to build they got all these tax grants and they were going to build some big facility in Wisconsin. Yeah, and that fizzled. And it just became a small like glass manufacturing facility or something. But uh, a lot of people think, oh, Foxconn, they make chips. No, they don't. They're, they're t- all they are is assembly. So they take the stuff from these other companies and they put it all together. Um, but yeah, the semiconductor companies are massive, massive investments. I think TSMC, for example, I think like last year um, on new fabrication facilities and R&D, I think they spent like 20, 25 billion. Um, that's per year. It's a massive business that is incredibly capital intensive and the profit margins are not that great. They're not as amazing as everybody thinks they are. So they're high risk, high reward kind of ventures because um, not a lot of people have the capital to be able to pull something like that off today. And it's only getting 
more expensive. Every new generation of fabrication technology, it's more and more and more expensive to pull it off. Let me give you a little bit of context as to what we're talking about between mainland China and uh, Taiwan. Now, back, way, way back when uh, China was quite literally uh, being raped and ravaged by imperialism by everybody out there. And they had a cultural revolution. They Basically, the Chinese communists uh, swept across and eventually Mao uh, got in charge. Now, Mao died in 1976. And after Mao died, there were a few years in which there was some, uh, yeah, a little bit of posturing back and forth. But it had a guy by the name of Deng, D-E-N-G, who took over. And what's interesting about him is he basically ran the organization, uh, the Communist Party and, and economics. And he, he basically said, you know, this whole uh, Chinese cultural revolution is fine, but but the way they were doing it, you know, all agrarian, no industrialization, we're done. And that was a radical departure from Mao, uh, which you always remember a Chinese philosophy is power comes from the barrel of a gun. Same thing with Russia, apparently. So Deng was in power from 1982 until basically until he died. But the thing is, uh, right after Mao died, this guy went on a world tour. He was educated in France for a while. So it's kind of funny how these things come back and bite. People don't know about Ho Chi Minh, the leader of North Vietnam, a French, even American trained. He came here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a whole story we'll get into. But not today, but another time. But the bottom line is, this guy went on a world tour and basically said, we want to be part of the world. And Jimmy Carter is the one who allowed mainland China to come into the World Trade Organization, gave him favorite trade status. Nixon had opened the door when Nixon was in office before he resigned in 74. So in just a few short years, they go from, you know, zip to full on. And he's going to get a lot of credit for the economic change that went on. But always remember, never forget, that a fellow by the name of Shanghai Shek fled with his army to Formosa. And Formosa is the name that the Chinese give to Taiwan. And believe it or not, it was, again, Jimmy Carter who no longer recognized Taiwan as a nation, although we still have military agreements with them. But from there, everything has just gone crazy. And the big thing that Deng did is made everybody, if, if you could pass the exams, you got free education over there. And they aggressively sent students to the U.S., of which about 80-85% returned it to China. And a lot of them brought a lot of knowledge back. Yeah, the, the Chinese revolution was successful and Mao got power, but he was pretty incompetent when it came to actually running a state. Much like Stalin, um, tactics and practices that they used were not very encouraging of the average population. So when you fast forward uh, to them actually getting access to wider markets and access to technology and information, man, oh man, did it, it's people talk about you know the rapid change in technology in the West. I think it's important to remember you have people in China who their parents grew up and you know they had an outhouse, yeah, and they're now living in a, a multi-million dollar penthouse in a high in a you know sixty-story high-rise in Shanghai. Like the, the a rapid transformation of China culturally and economically is really, really something amazing to see. Um, which you know is interesting to consider when you start looking at things like their relationship with Taiwan and the fact that Taiwan advanced even quicker. Um, Taiwan is you know I think capita uh, wealthier and higher income than China, and they have a couple of major industries that they are really beholden to. Uh, China is obviously well known for electronics manufacturing and, and assembly, but people don't realize that a lot of those really sophisticated chips that they get, they, they're manufacturing them in Taiwan and they're shipping them across, which is such a weird situation to be in for China because they don't acknowledge that they exist, but yet they have all this giant amount of trade with them. And yeah, it's, it's a very confusing situation. It's not like North and South Korea. No, no, it's, it's, it's much more integrated, but also, and, and not 
not as hostile, but I mean, everybody knows it eventually will be. Well, some people won't like this analogy, but semiconductors are literally the new oil in many regards. This what they you've got an oil boom in in Taiwan for this. Uh, Korea, the Koreans call, which is kind of cool, they call semiconductors rice. R I C E. It's rice. You got to have it no matter what. Makes sense to me. Yeah, Korea's had a fantastic ability to retain semiconductor manufacturing capability despite heavy competition with Taiwan and, and other countries. And that's been a core piece of their ability to survive COVID. Um, companies like Samsung and others making chips that go in cars and that go in smartphones and that go in the handful of key industries that they that they uh, manufacture. And the other thing they do, that Korea is, is, is a, to go back to the very beginning of this, they do the opposite of the Jack Welsh. They believe in the original GE mantra of being fully vertical and horizontally integrated. And that's something else we should talk about some other time because where China really takes the American model of one company does one thing and we just have tons and tons and tons of companies that work with each other and lots of cross uh, compatibility and everything. A good example is like there's an old Tim Cook interview where somebody asked, well, why can't you make things in the, the United States like you can in China? And then he goes to explain, well, uh, we get the cameras from Japan and they're shipped across here and we get the chips from Taiwan and they come across here. And then everything else comes from like a six mile area around Shenzhen where we have all of our assembly and manufacturing. Everything from screws to the gaskets that go into things to the, I think the glass is still made in the United States, which is weird, corning. Yep. Um, but, you know, the all the all the pieces then come together and all the little things and that proximity is super valuable. Um, but in Korea, they also believe that except that they put it all under one house. So a good example is like Hyundai. The reasons Hyundais are so economically uh, valuable uh, or they're, they're affordable. affordable, they're affordable, but they're you, they're you get a lot more bang for your buck. Yeah, the price and quality to those are just amazing. And the reason they're able to do it is because they do everything from smelting the iron to you know, final assembly and shipping it out all across the world. They do everything. You know, in Tampa, there used to be a very uh, successful gentleman and the Jim Walters Corporation. Literally, that was their hallmark. Uh, they'll get you the land. They got they did everything. I mean, they built a house from soup to nuts, including getting you the mortgage and whole nine yards. Did very, very well for a long, long time. Long, long time. But, you know, despite, despite having all of these capabilities in China, they don't hold the key to the kingdom, which is the silicon. They have up and coming organizations that are trying to compete, but they are simply many, many years still, even today. Despite that little bit of water separating the two, there's a tremendous amount of knowledge gap and capability gap between the two countries. Yeah, we're not going to do it in this episode. I don't know if we'll do it on Friday, but we're going to do it. We're going to talk about the military capabilities of China and the Soviet Union. Well, it's not Soviet Union, Russia. Might as well be. I, I, I got to always remember that. Might as we're, well be. They're raising the Soviet flags and yep. they seem to be on the warpath to try and expand. So and I've, I've made the same mistake in the past week. We're, we are going to do a deep dive and we've got a lot of information that has never gotten out. And I, I think it's time that we can do that. But the reality is semiconductors are literally the basic building blocks for everything in the technology industry. And if you ever want to go and visit one, get ready to put on a bunny suit. You will go through, well, you're not going to be able to visit. They're not going to take you through a uh, chip, uh, like no. a, a Lay's potato chip thing. Nobody gets in. No, that's like getting ultra top secret clearance. Even if you think you know what's going on in there, they're not going to let you in. But if you did get in, you you look like the Pillsbury uh, doughboy. Sure. 
<laughs> yeah, the cleanliness aspect of chip manufacturing is something that uh, I think people understand, but they don't really understand. Just to add a couple little anecdotes, uh, Taiwan sits on a fault line. They have earthquakes. So in order to manufacture these things, they're extremely, uh, they have to be extremely stable. So they build literally giant, the entire manufacturing floors of these things are on a giant uh, suspension effectively, so that even the slightest earthquake will not jostle the floor at all. Um, that's part of that, what I told you, the 20 plus billion dollars a year investment, new facilities, new manufacturing capabilities. It's the kind of stuff they're doing there. Um, the other the other huge expense of, of uh, semiconductors is water. A lot of people don't consider this. They think you can do this anywhere, but that is the number one expense of these facilities aside from the actual capital costs, wiring all the equipment and putting facilities together. The largest ongoing cost is the water because in order to do these uh, modern chips, every single pass requires a very, uh, it requires water and washing. And in order to do this, uh, you need to keep debris and everything out of it. Well, there, there's a type of water, they call it like super clean water or some, some funny name for it, but it's extremely pure water. And that is, uh, TSMC is always like, they design their entire facilities around water purification. And how and this is not water you're going to drink, folks. Well, and it, but it is because then they take it and they then filter out all the heavy metals and everything. And then they, they basically repurify it and they turn it back in or they recycle it for their own purposes or they recycle it back into the system for drinking water. It's really, really complicated. Um, there's, there's as much advanced technology in water purification as there is anything else in those facilities. And that's the one thing that's really crazy to think about um, because Taiwan has had a drought in the past couple of years. And that was a huge, huge, huge issue. I think what TSMC was spending like, I don't know, millions of dollars a month just to acquire water so that they could manufacture the ships. You know what I'd be and interested in finding out is I'd be interested in finding out what the cancer rates among those who are using their purified water versus here anywhere in the U.S. Because if anyone ever looked at the number of chemicals and drugs everywhere, just about everywhere oh, that's yeah. in, especially any urban reclaimed water, it is, it is. It's terrible. Yeah. It's horrible. It's but frightening. One, but that's one of the, the locations considerations that most people don't think about and I honestly have really only seen it referenced by maybe one or two people they talk about TSMC or Intel building these chip fabrication facilities in Arizona and Ohio uh, they're picking it because of the t labor pool they're picking it because of tax incentives picking it because of the cost of land and future expansion but the other thing they're also picking it on is access to fresh water and how how much it will cost for them to actually purify it to make their super ultra mega clean water not only is water a big deal. But the other thing that we should always remember, never forget, anyone who expects to be able to do this from soup to nuts in a relatively short period of time, not going to be able to do it because there's just not the intellectual capacity to go around. There's only so many people in the world that have the brain power to get this stuff done. And nobody wants to talk about that. Well, and it's also highly specialized. So even it's if no have, easy feat. This is huge. Yeah. Even if you have the cap the intellectual capabilities, it requires decades of training to be able to do this at a very high level. So there's a, there's a very long-term focus required, um, not just from a company level, but also from a from a government level. A good example of this is uh, India had an up-and-coming semiconductor manufacturing industry in the early 90s. They were actually at the cutting edge in, into like 1991, 1992, and basically a combination of uh, employee disputes with the company, there was a fire at a facility, and then brain drain by competing companies hiring these people away. They lost it completely. Uh, yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Let's Let's stay on that for just a second. One of the things that I'd like to emphasize is that, and I want to, I'm going to give you the punchline ahead of time, is we're going to talk about blacklisting of companies in China. And always remember, never forget, every company in China
China is eventually owned by the, the government, okay? Chinese party, the, uh, the Chinese party, the Communist Party owns every business. So even though somebody says, nah, that's not true, this company is listed on this uh, exchange or an American depository receipt. No, every company ultimately lives and dies based upon what the government says. Look at Jack Ma, I mean, what they did to him and others. I mean, there's a, a long, long list of people. Perfect example of this is the is the military. The Chinese the Chinese government, the, Chi- the country of China does not actually have a military. Contrary to what a lot of people believe, the Chinese Communist Party has a military. There's a very specific distinction there because every person in the military has to be part of the part of the Chinese Communist Party and it's like a whole thing. It's about control. Can so you the ma- party is the thing that really controls all of this stuff. So could you imagine in the United States, let's just stick with a Republican and Democrat. When the Democrat gets in, everybody gets out of office who is a Republican and a new military comes in place. I mean, that wouldn't work. So that's why there's one party. Bingo. That's, and, why, that's why we say it's just two sides of the same coin. But Well, yeah. And, and the thing with the Chinese Communist Party and the military and stuff, the reason I mentioned that is because the, the military has a strategic uh, like investment group that owns a lot of these companies, specifically as it relates to technology. Technology is viewed as a very important um, national security risk for the, not just the party, the party in the country. And one of the things that they do is they own, like you said, they own or control in the background the majority of these companies. Good example is Huawei. Well, everybody knows Huawei is owned by the Chinese Communist Party military investment division for electronics and, and that sort of stuff. Um, it's an, it's a public company. There's public shares you can invest in, but that doesn't mean you have any control over anything. Yeah, if you're an investor and you would like to uh, blacklist companies that uh, you're not a fan of, bingo. Uh, fixed cost financial. That's one of the things we've put together years ago. If you're interested in that, get a hold of us. Uh, you can literally have a separately managed account where we are doing some phenomenal work for our clients. But if you say, yeah, no, we're not going to invest in that company. Let's say uh, your father lost his job with Jack Welch and you go, bingo, not going to invest in them. We can do that. We have a different approach that a lot of people don't understand. But one of the things I want to say is that, you know, the, the NBA has to kowtow to the Chinese. We've, I'm not going to get into all the details. We know that Hollywood, the biggest, if you want to make a movie and make money, you got to get into China. So the Chinese now indirectly are telling Hollywood what they can and can't do. Look at the movies, folks. Just look at the movies and what's going on. And then we, all these politicians, when uh, when they were blacklisting companies, um, what like was Huawei. it? Huawei. Huawei. What did you have? You had a bunch of both Republicans and Democrats screaming and hollering, this is not right. Uh, free enterprise. I think it was Republicans that tend to do mo- most of the screaming oh, yeah. and hollering on it. Eh, it whoever's in office, just flip role reversal. It doesn't matter. But yeah, the the, uh, the complaining about free enterprise and all that stuff. But the reality is, what, what were they doing? They're banning Chi- the Chinese military from doing business. Yeah. That's that, that's the deep secret of it all. It's not even really a secret. It's just people don't talk about it in polite society because it hurt somebody's feelings, which I find ridiculous because all it does is it masks the reality of the situation, which is Chinese military uses these companies. They they use they use their intelligence operatives and agents to steal stuff from other companies, whether they're Taiwanese, whether they're American, Japanese, Korean, whatever. And then all they do is they just take it back and figure out how to reverse engineer it and then they are able to play catch up. You're pretty good on uh, military items, especially on uh, aircraft engines. Why don't you just talk briefly and then what I want to do is go into and talk a little bit about North Korea being the crypto hacker uh, for bad actors. And we'll talk briefly about that because that's going to be another episode probably in and of itself. But China, they make some airplanes. But what is the one thing they're not so good at? Yeah, China historically, they're not really good at making anything. It's not an insult. It's just reality of their, uh, I guess, design and creative capabilities. They don't seem to design and 
make anything that's particularly new. They really just kind of copy everybody else. They, which, which to some people is a, is a huge insult and it's an affront to somebody's like intellectual capability. Others but say it's, it's a great compliment. But it's actually kind of, a, it's, it's, it's a compliment at the same time. It's both. Because the reality is, is when you copy somebody else, you don't have to do the R&D. You get to skip a lot of stuff that a lot of companies invest a lot of money. So uh, to go back to Huawei as an example, so this is just something that a lot of people know. Huawei got into the, uh, obviously they make phones and they make computers and they make all kinds of stuff now. But they started in the business by making uh, cellular and and, uh, and IT switches and equipment like that. So think of like your Cisco routers and, and things that are even more kind of back office than that. Big fiber switches and complicated, complicated enterprise equipment. Very expensive, especially back in like, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. And what they did is Huawei sent literal spies around the world to steal uh, information and designs on how these things work from different companies. And one of the things that they did was they copied a design from Ericsson. Everybody remembers the company that ended up being merged with Sony. And anyways, it's a uh, it's Norway. It's it's someplace in Northern Europe, um, maybe Finland, something like that. Anyways, Ericsson. I don't remember. No. But Ericsson was world renowned for their oh, yeah. very uh, leading edge, um, mainly like networking equipment, stuff like that. And Huawei copied them lock, stock, and barrel to the point that they also did the same thing with Cisco, a popular Cisco router. Um, but I, I don't know if it was Cisco or if it was Ericsson, one of the two. Uh, they copied them so thoroughly that the software that they copied had the same bugs, which is absolute ridiculousness. But they did it for a fraction of the price. So, you know, you have a company that develops something that's, you know, something that's going to be expensive, but and potentially, you know, a competitive edge for whoever's going to be buying it or whatever. And then, you know, you fast forward to somebody copying you. Well, you, they're meeting you to market within six months or a year. You spent, now you may have just caught up with your actual R&D costs. So you may have spent a hundred million dollars developing this product. Somebody comes along behind you, literally totally rips you off. And now, now you're back to square one. And that's what Huawei has made an entire business off of. And, you but know, to this day, you still have people saying, oh, I can't believe, I can't believe Trump. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, and that's just head in the sand idiocy because, I mean, you can go and look at Huawei designs for smartphones and computers and they copy Apple so thoroughly, it's actually kind of embarrassing. But so the point is, is that this is a cultural thing that goes deeper than just one company. And this also goes to airplane manufacturing. Uh, they hacked Boeing and these different other companies and they stole some of the design plans for different planes and things. They've copied all kinds of stuff. But see, the thing is people fail to, I guess, talk about maybe due to lack of knowledge or whatever, but they did the same thing to the Russians. Like they're an equal opportunity thief as far as intellectual property design. And the whoever manufactures the airplanes for the Chinese military, I'm sure there's a couple Chinese military-owned companies, they copied uh, a lot of these planes. That's one of the reasons the Russians have always been kind of skeptical of giving these giving these guys the newest, freshest equipment because they know they're just going to copy it piece for piece. And But the, one of the downsides of them copying is they can't get some elements of it right. Some very, very, very unique aspects of designing airplanes. That GE and Rolls-Royce, for example. Yeah, they're very hard to do. And that the thing with airplanes is uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are unique about airplanes that are very hard to manufacture and make them very expensive. But by far the biggest is manufacturing the actual engines, um, whether they're jet or actually kind of funnily enough, uh, depending on what design you're looking at, um, turbine engines can be even harder to manufacture. Um, but regardless, manufacturing those engines is very, very difficult. And one of the things that China has been, has struggled to do for decades is to even copy good, good engine designs. So as they copied some of these airplanes, uh, military aircraft in particular, uh, I think it was 
the flanker series aircraft from Sukhoi. Uh, they copied the planes and they got into a big, big row with the Russians. And it was a big uh, diplom diplomatic issue. But the big thing, they, they couldn't replace the actual engines. Um, so they kept buying from Russia the actual the engines for them. That was how Russia thought they kind of, uh, they had control of the situation. And eventually they, I think they ended up replicating it in the past couple of years, but it's been a very recent development. Um, they, I think it's called the J-20. It's their version of a fourth generation stealth aircraft. It's kind of crappy to be honest, based on everything I've seen. Um, the engine sucks though. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interpretive design. It's not a total copy of like the F-22 or whatever. I think a lot of people don't understand like how advanced the U.S. military's aircraft are. I was kind of surprised by this and digging back into a lot of the stuff because of Russia and everything. Uh, the F-22 is almost older than me. It's been in, it's been in service for, for almost, for just about 20 years or a little over 20 years. Yep. And it is still one of the, it's, it's still like the best of the best fighter aircraft that exist. Um, and, but it's so old that they're actually starting to retire some of the first manufactured versions of it. Um, Chinese copied this 10 years ago. And as far as I can tell, it's still kind of a prototype. Uh, they don't really have a, a big deployment to their, their actual air force. So there's a lot of, um, just because you can copy doesn't mean it's going to be fully functional. And it's another one of those things that's a multi-generational investment in, uh, okay, you can copy, but what did you learn from copying it? Did you, did you institutionalize these really weird, unique skills that it takes to not only just do manufacturing, but then take it to the next step and being able to do your own designs? And that's a that's a core competency that obviously they're trying to acquire from, from Taiwan when it comes to semiconductors. Not to mention that airplanes have so much technology in them now, they're just as important as the actual engines and the airframe. For those of you who know Paul and I, you know that uh, we deal with facts and figures. We're forecasters at heart. And one of the things that I can tell you we've done beginning a couple of years before COVID, but especially in COVID, we have gotten to the point where we are very, very, very pro-American. We really love the country, but we're not going to go political like the crazy Republicans, the crazy Democrats, or the crazy Libertarians. We're not into that. We're into what are the facts. And the facts are our country, our military is phenomenal. And we're talking a lot about this in the office uh, and in our in-depth discussions with others is because everything that's going on right now is going to potentially break. We've got a war in Ukraine. We've got a potential. There's just a lot of stuff going on without getting into anything that I want to keep exclusively for clients. But the bottom line is, look at how much is influenced in everything that we do, from the water you drink to your iPhone, to your smartwatch, to your car. It's influenced with the relationship going on in China. It just is. But also, a lot of people talked about, you know, the Russians hacking the election and Trump and all that kind of stuff. Not going to get into that. But what I do want you to know, <clears throat> excuse me, is, and just briefly, what, and just because we're going to set up for a future podcast, what's this whole thing about Russia, crypto, and North Korea? Well, so this is something that's funny. This is, North Korea is, is, is a unique piece on the chessboard that I think even I've had, I, I've had a difficult time understanding because other people don't understand it. There's nobody to learn from. What, what role does North Korea play? It's a unique, it's a unique chess piece. It's kind of like Pakistan. Pakistan is very much the same way. The difference is Pakistan has 200 million people and has nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea is not 200 million people and they barely have nuclear weapons. And Pakistan has more people than who? Russia. Yes. Yeah. Pakistan is, is, a, is another place with lots of regional and, and country problems going on right now uh, that it warrants its own discussion. But, um, but North Korea is a really weird place. And it mainly from the fact that they can't feed their people, but yet they can make nukes. They can have uh, entire hacking industries. They can have all kinds of weird stuff like that, but yet they still can't manage to feed their own people. They have to import coal. 
coal from China, but yet they have some of the largest coal reserves on the planet. They just can't mine it properly. It's like it's 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 upside down world over there, and you really wonder what the heck is actually going on. And a, a piece of information I came across recently is that they seem to be playing a spoiler role for Russia and or China, depending on who needs them. So for those of you who are all crypto, crypto, everything crypto, pay very careful attention. Uh, yeah, I mean you go back in time. Russia used them for to manufacture their fake cash, so the KGB could run a covert ops and front groups and stuff in the United States. So literally for a long, long time, and this is well known in law enforcement communities. For those of you who are in law enforcement, you didn't know this. Well, you weren't part of the secret squirrel club. Uh, Russia and North Korea have been uh, counterfeiting money hand over fist. And that explains why these guys have some extra coin to do things that, uh, and apparently their counterfeiting is pretty damn good. Yeah. Historically speaking, uh, people in in the um, secret service and and intelligence community that figured this stuff out. uh, Yeah. In the nineties, especially it was really good and probably going back even further. It was really good because it was a lot simpler. Today we're putting in holographic strips and plastic and like all kinds of weird stuff and people make fun of it. You know, oh, these are, these are pl- it's plastic money. It's monopoly money. We do that because people, you know, it's, it's, it's no different than hacking. Will you get hacked? Yes. You have to, you have to always be one step above the adversary and money is no exception to that. I mean, there's, I, th- I think something along the lines of trillion dollars in actual currency floating are out there, around out there in the US dollars. And that in and of itself is something that has to be secure, very difficult to reproduce. And unlike a lot of countries, you can still take a banknote, a U.S. Treasury note from 100 years ago, and you can walk in and use it to anywhere to this day. And that's something not a lot of countries can actually say they can do. Definitely not in Russia. Go on eBay and you can find cheap former currency of every country in the world, except the United States is the only one that's like, oh, look at this old bill from 1899, and it's worth a multiple of that of its face value. Um, because I think we're probably the only country in the world that still has that unless it's a collectible and a rare. And the reason for it is, is because we, one, we honor all of our currency, even if it is old, which is means it's a long-term store of value. But it also means that we have to kind of stay ahead of the game and prevent old stuff from being easily made or keep people from being able to easily manufacture and, and effectively rip off our currency, thus devaluing it. We're going to wrap up. Uh, one of the things I would say, there is a few people out there that know that I'm no longer associating with you because real simply, if you are meme-based and you are super surface level, I can't deal with this stuff. This is this is hard stuff. And um, son, you would you agree that this is just a fraction of the depth of what we talk about off record? I mean, oh, absolutely. So it is um, Tuesday, April 19th, it's 2022. Tomorrow, I will be seeing a whole bunch of you at the third Tuesday event at Armature Works down in uh, Tampa. So if you're in the Armature Works area, you want to go by the uh, big bar in the big open area. Uh, third Tuesday, they put on an event there and uh, I'll be there, be there with a couple of people I know. And so with that being said, my name is Paul Truesdell and... And I'm Paul Truesdell. And we're Two Pauls in a Pod. We'll see you on Friday. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is sponsored in part by Fixed Cost Financial, a registered investment advisor. Fixed Cost Financial, where investing is done right. Visit FixedCostFinancial.com. That's FixedCostFinancial.com. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is also sponsored in part by LiDi Today. Intelligently protecting your most precious assets. Visit LiDi.today. That's LiDi.today. You'll be glad you did.
The Paul Trusdell podcast is also sponsored in part by the estate planning, elder law, and asset protection planning law firm of attorney Kelly and Trusdell. Visit Truesdell.net, that's Truesdell.net for more information. The Paul Truesdell Podcast website is paultruesdell.com, that's paultruesdell.com.